0: If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2. It should be on your screen up there. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember "...his flesh to the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in its ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near." into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray this morning. Father, Lord God, thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Son as we get closer to the Christmas season here, Lord, and, and we think about the Incarnation and, and God the Son coming down in, in human form, being born, Lord, as a baby, creator of the universe, Lord, walking with us living a perfect life, fulfilling the law perfectly, Lord, and dying on the cross for our sins, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that not only have you brought peace, Lord, between man and God, Lord, you have brought peace between man and man, Lord. Creating one body, Lord, that is one, two, three, many different men, Lord, coming together as one body, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for that. I pray, Lord, as we go over this passage This passage on peace and unity, Lord, that we reflect in our own lives, Lord, where we need to sacrificially love others within the church, Lord, within our families, Lord. Just pray that you're with us this morning as we go over this passage in your Son's name. Amen. I believe the overarching theme I've been saying as we've been going through Ephesians over and over again, the overarching theme of Ephesians is unity, and unity especially through love. Unity and love is the overarching theme of Ephesians. And I've been saying that the first half of Ephesians is this deep doctrine, the depth of God's grace. And the second half is how to live out this theology and doctrine, the depth of God's grace lived out in love. Therefore, because love and unity is the overarching theme of Ephesians, I really feel that verse 11 is starting to get into the heart of this letter. Paul is starting to address the unity between redeemed Christian Jews and redeemed Christian Gentiles. And if you're unfamiliar with that word Gentiles, it's just anyone that's not a Jew. Anyone that's not a Jew. And that's most, if not all of us this morning. We are Gentile Christians. We come from a Gentile heritage. We don't come from a Jewish heritage. That's every other nation except the Jews. And And this time, when Paul wrote this letter, these two groups had a lot of hostility towards each other. Two weeks ago, we talked about this hostility. And we saw that Paul is addressing unity, but he's specifically addressing Gentile Christians. And the reason this is, he's, he's talking in this letter to Gentile Christians, is that they're just the majority of the church in Ephesus. And the passage I just read... Ephesians, verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22 really can be broken up into three things. Paul is telling Gentile Christians three things. The first one is who they were, these Gentiles, who they were before Christ. That's verses 11 and 12, and that was our sermon two weeks ago. He's also telling what has changed. What has changed. That's verses 13 through 16. That's what we'll be going over this morning. And the third thing is the effects of this change. That's verses 17 through 22. Again, verses 11 through 12 we went over two weeks ago. It's who we were, and I say we, that's Gentile Christians, that's most of us, who we were before Christ. And look at verse 11. It says, therefore remember. Paul starts this section with an imperative. It's the only imperative you're going to find in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul wants the. The Gentile church, he's he's commanding them to remember. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Let me get to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love verse 13. Two weeks ago we saw who we were before Christ. Again, today we're going to look at what has changed. What has changed? And there's four points I'd like to go over this morning in uh, the sermon this morning. The first point is this. Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. The second point, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The third point, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of the law. He's broken down the dividing wall of the law. And the last point, Christ has uni- or united us through the cross. Christ has united us through the cross. So the first point this morning is Christ is our peace. Look at verse 14. It starts, it says this, For he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. That word for in Greek really points backwards to verse 13. Again, verse 13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. Jesus' blood, his death on the cross, has brought us near, has brought Gentiles who were once far off near to God. For he, that's Jesus, for he himself is our peace. The Greek word for peace is eirene. Eirene means lack of hostility or peace, and it's really hard to tell what, what Paul is referring to here when he says, for he himself is our peace. Is this peace talking about, about peace between God and man? Right? Gentiles now have peace with God, Then that would fit really well with verse 13 again, which says, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near to God. We have peace with God now because of Christ's death. Or is this peace referring to the peace between Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians, which really fits the context of the whole passage and kind of completes the rest of the verse in verse 14, which says, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So I've read commentaries and theologians. There's people that disagree back and forth. I just personally think he's talking about both. Connecting the two verses together, and that's because our peace with God, verse 13, is foundational to our peace with each other, verse 14. The gospel is foundational, the good news is foundational to our reconciliation with each other. Therefore, true peace starts with Christ, starts with Christ and the good news of Christ, the gospel. Look at verse 14 again. It says, For he himself is our peace. He himself. In Greek, that's just one word, it's atos, which means he. Just one word he. But it's in the emphatic position. So most English translations translate it he himself to get the point across that that Jesus alone is our peace. He himself. Jesus alone is our peace, not works, not good deeds. Not the law, not obeying the law, not ceremonies, not animal sacrifice, not being a Jew. He himself is our peace. There is nothing that will bring peace between you and God besides Christ. And faith in Christ and the death of Christ. It's, it's Christ and Christ alone. He himself is our peace. And that's true between man and man. There's nothing that will bring true, lasting peace between man and man, between nations, between races, between ethnic groups, between families, between husbands and wives. There is nothing that will bring true, lasting peace besides Christ and Christ alone, besides the gospel. Listen, the history of mankind has proven this to be true. It's proven this to be true. Our history is nothing but war after war after war after war after war. It's interesting in recent history, in modern history, the age of the Enlightenment was actually a very positive age, if you don't know this. The 18th and 19th century, early 19th century, was a very positive age. It was the age of reason. Man thought that reason, science, and technology would be a savior to mankind would solve all of man's problems. Technology would end diseases. The Industrial Revolution would bring economic growth. Scientific Revolution would bring knowledge and insight. Men of the Enlightenment thought reason would end wars. That reason would bring peace. That reason would build perfect governments. That reason would build perfect communities. It was a very positive age. There was much hope. But this positivism was mortally wounded in the early 20th century with World War I. Man used his reason and technology to kill each other. Machine guns, tanks, barbed wire, poisonous gas, these were all new technologies, and, and it was beyond anything man has ever seen, millions dead. World War I crippled man's hope, and World War II completely destroyed it. 70 million people dead. 20th century was the bloodiest century ever. By the end of World War II, this technology that was bringing so much hope has brought us the nuclear bomb, where we could just destroy each other. We now live in a postmodern world, which is actually a very pessimistic age. And part of this is that reason alone is a horrible savior. Reason alone will not bring peace. And I hear this all the time. If we could just educate each other, it would end war, it would end racism, it would end hate, it would end fighting, and that's just not true. Man's problem is much deeper than reason. Reason alone can never solve man's greatest problem, which is our sin nature. Sin is at the root of all division and conflict. In fact, if you would, turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 1. James chapter 4 verse 1 starts with a question. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Don't don't we want to know that answer? I mean, that's that's an important question right there. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels within the church? What causes fights within families? What causes quarrels and fights within marriages? This is a very important question. Look what it says, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. James doesn't let you blame shift. He doesn't let you say, well, well, it's it's their problem. That's why I'm in a fight. It's my spouse's problem. It's some other church member's problem. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is not this, that your passions are at war within you. You. Don't look at the other person, in other words. Look at your own heart. Look at your own wants. Look at, look at verse 2. You desire, you want, in other words, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And that desire and want, just so you know, may be a good thing. It may not be an evil desire. You might want something that is good, and someone gets in the way of it, and so you murder, or hate, or fight. You covet, in other words, you want and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen, self-worship is the root of all conflict. This is true in the church, this is true in families, this is true in marriages. You desire and do not have, so you murder or you fight and quarrel. Therefore, peace and unity comes from selflessness. It comes from self-denial. It comes from dying to self. It comes from sacrificial love. Peace comes only when the self dies. And that only happens at the foot of the cross. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. That's the first point. The second point this morning is Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. If you would, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Look at verse 14. It says this, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's an interesting phrase. What is the dividing wall of hostility? What is Paul talking about? Well, without a doubt, in this passage, Paul is alluding to the temple. It's clear throughout this passage that Paul is alluding to the temple. Actually, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation. That's an analogy to a building. Built on the foundation, Of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, again a building, and the the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul is alluding to, he's pointing to the the temple. And Paul says in verse thirteen, You were once far off. You who once were far off, it's I believe allusion to the temple. In the temple, you had the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence. That's where God's presence was. Once a year, a priest, only once a year, could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. Outside of the Holy Holies is where the priests and Levites would hang out. Outside of that is where the Jewish men would hang out. Outside of that is where the Jewish women were allowed to go. And, and outside of that, far off, was the court of the Gentiles. Far from the Holy of Holies, far from God's presence. In verse 13, Paul says, You who once were far off. I believe this is an allusion to the temple. Here's what's interesting the court of the Gentiles was, was actually separated from the rest of the temple by a wall, a wall that Gentiles were forbidden to pass. A Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote that this wall was four and a half feet and had signs in Greek and Latin so that all Gentiles, not in Hebrew, Greek and Latin, so all Gentiles could read, that said this, Let no foreigner, that's a Gentile, anyone that's not a Jewish person, let no foreigner enter past this wall and enclose surrounding the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I actually found one of these signs pretty much all intact in 1871. It's in the Museum of Istanbul, and in 1934, there was a fragment of another sign, I meaning there's multiple signs around the temple that said this, that you can find in the Museum of Jerusalem in the, to this day. There was literally a dividing wall of hostility. But, you know, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, why this allusion to the temple? And it's kind of cryptic. It's kind of hard to see. If you just read it, you'd be like, is it this is really talking about the temple? Because think about this. Paul's not writing to Jews. He's writing primarily to, to Gentile Christians from Asia Minor. Christians that probably have never seen the temple before and don't know a whole lot about it. So why is the temple on Paul's mind as he's writing to the Ephesians? It's the question I was wondering. Well, think about this. Ephesians is often called by theologians a prison epistle. It's because it's one of the epistles that Paul wrote in prison while he was in prison at Rome. And why was he in prison? Turn with me to Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Acts chapter 21, verse 27. This is the the passage that starts the whole process of Paul being in prison and then eventually ending up in Rome in prison. It should be on your screen. Verse 27 says this When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul, seeing him, that's Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, Listen to what they say, these Jews from Asia. He even brought Greeks, that's a Gentile, he even brought Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place where they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed that Paul brought a Gentile, a non-Jewish, an Ephesian into the temple, crossing the dividing wall. Paul was arrested because the Jews falsely accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple past the dividing wall. And I'm sure this church knew about it. I mean, think about that. They probably knew Trophimus, the Ephesian. Probably knew him. They probably knew about everything that happened. And look what the Jews said in verse 28. Moreover, he brought a Greek, a, an Ephesian, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Do you see the disdain the Jews had for Gentiles? Just the mere presence, presence of a Gentile in the temple defiled the whole thing. Which leads to a question, and I hope you ask this question as you read the Old Testament. If God wanted to reach the nations, if God wants to reach the nations, which if you read the Old Testament, that's clear. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God has a heart for the nations. I hope you're starting to see that in the Old Testament. If, if God wanted to reach the nations, why, why did he make such a separation between Jews and Gentiles? Why set up the temple this way? One theologian said this, God had originally separated Jews from Gentiles for the purpose of redeeming both groups. Not for saving the Jews alone. Right? This was always God's purpose. It's clear in the Old Testament that the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. He placed the court of the Gentiles in the temple for the very purpose of winning Gentiles to himself. It was meant to be a place of Jewish evangelism of gentiles a place for winning proselytes to Jerusalem or to to Ju, uh, Judaism and of thereby bringing them near it's one of the reasons Jesus was so angry with the temple actually turn to uh, Mark 11 chapter 11 verse 15 it'll be on your screen Mark 11 chapter chapter 11 verse 15 It says this in verse fifteen, chapter eleven, of Mark. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, this is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple or bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and of the money changers and um, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And when, or and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus was upset. Why? Verse seventeen. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Ponte ethnai, ethne. All the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 because of its corruption and its failure to be a light to the nations. Jesus was angry, so angry that he was overturning tables. Because the temple wasn't being a light to the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations, for the Gentiles. Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he, that's Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who has made us both one. That's Jews and Gentiles are one. Now Christians. Now Christ followers. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look back at verse 13 real quick. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. Right? That's the court of the Gentiles, I believe. Far off. Far from the, the presence of God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Gentiles now are one with Jewish Christians, both having access to God through faith in Christ. Both having access to nearness, a relationship with God. Second point of the sermon today is, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The third point is, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of the law. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In, in Greek, that last part, in ordinances, is literally in its dogmas. The dividing wall is an illusion, I believe, to the temple, but also... It's a picture of the Jewish law itself. Jews often called the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, a dividing wall, a fence that kept the Jews separated from the pagan nation and practices that surrounded them. There is 613 Old Testament laws. And these laws separated Jews from Gentiles. These laws made it so they couldn't eat together. They couldn't live together. They couldn't marry each other. They couldn't fellowship with one another. Israel was called to live differently and look differently than all the other nations. Which again leads to a question. Why would God give these laws if he wanted Israel to reach the nations? Again, which is clear in the Old Testament that God had a heart for the nations. Well, that same theologian said this. The stipulations of the law were to protect the Jews from the practices of the world. But at the same time, Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests as a testimony to God. They were to keep the law, which provided opportunity to witness to their Gentile neighbors of God's wonderful deliverance, care, holiness, and grace. The laws were to teach Israel, and through Israel, teach the nations about God. The laws of the Old Testament were to point Israel and therefore point the nations to the coming Messiah, to Christ. But, rather than using the law as a witness, it became the tool that enabled them to look down on the Gentiles whom they considered sinners. Hence, this caused hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Due to this and the hardness with which they practiced their laws, they were considered by the Gentiles as prideful and stubborn people. Hence, it was not the law itself that was hostile, but the wrong conception and use of the law, which resulted in hostility on both sides. The law became a dividing wall of hostility. It was always meant to divide. Right? The law was always meant to divide Israel and separate Israel from, from the nations, but it became a dividing wall of hostility. But Jesus' death broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. When Jesus died on the cross, listen, he destroyed. He destroyed the barrier between God and man. Man has access to God because of Christ's death on the cross and our faith in Christ. But Christ also destroyed the barriers between man and man. One of the greatest barriers in the Old Testament was the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. Especially the civil and ceremonial laws, the feasts, the sacrifice, the, the offering, the laws of being clean and unclean. These ceremonial laws were outward commands for Israel in the Old Testament to separate them from the nations and to point them to Christ. And this is one of the reasons these laws are not, no longer needed. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are Old Testament ceremonial laws. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the substance of these laws. In other words, the Old Testament laws were meant to point Israel to Christ, point Israel to the coming Messiah. Christ is the fulfillment of these laws. He's completely fulfilled every single Old Testament law that pointed to him. The law to sacrifice lambs pointed to Jesus Christ as the true Lamb of God. And he's the fulfillment of those laws. And that means, because, of, because we have Christ, the Old Testament laws are no longer needed. Does that mean we, as New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, are no longer under the law? This is such an important question. This is why I'm spending so much time on this. You're going to be asking, I'm sure many of you have asked, why don't you follow all the laws of the Bible? And then that person that's going to ask that, maybe sarcastically and maybe genuinely, will pull out some obscure Old Testament law, like don't wear two different types of cloth in your garment, which many of us are right now. Right? That's Leviticus nineteen nineteen. Don't eat unclean animals like pork, which I'm sure many of us ate on Thanksgiving. Right? Or the command to sacrifice lambs in the temple. I really think the answer to this is is somewhat simple. The reason we don't follow the Old Testament laws anymore is because we're no longer under the old covenant. We are new covenant believers. We belong to a new covenant. Therefore, the civil laws of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament don't don't or old covenant don't apply to us. They were meant for Israel, who was under the Old Covenant. Now I want to be very clear on this. We can learn from these laws. The Old Testament is inspired by God just as inspired as the New Testament. All the Old Testament laws we can learn from, it teaches us about God and who he is and who his people were called to be. But we are new covenant believers under a new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says this, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is is ready to to vanish away. Or Galatians 3.24 says this, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Therefore, we are no longer under the Old Testament law. Which leads to another question. Does that mean we can live any way we want to? We all know that that's not true. We can't live any way we want to as New Testament believers. No, not at all. We are under a new covenant. We're under what Paul calls the law of Christ. The law of Christ, which simply is two things love God and love others. Love God and love others. This Matthew 22, verse 37 says, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John thirteen thirty-four says, A new commandment I give to you. He says, this is a new commandment, even though he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to give a commandment from the Old Testament. It's, there's a newness to it. Because of the example of Christ and and that it's a new covenant commandment, a a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Or Romans 13.8 says this, O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall Not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's our commandment. To love God and love others. Love God and love others. Therefore, some of the Old Testament laws do apply to us today. Some of the Old Testament laws have transferred over to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant laws have transferred over to the New Covenant. Many theologians call these laws the moral laws. The moral laws. Laws that closely reflect God's character. They're closely tied to who God is. The laws that are written on man's heart. How do we know what these laws are or which ones we are supposed to obey. Well, this is a very debated question. But I just believe the New Testament shows us. The New Testament shows us. If a command is reestablished in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, then it's a, a law that we're called to obey today. It's a law that we're called to obey out of love for God and out of love for others. All the other laws in the Old Testament, all the ceremonial laws and civil laws, we can learn from them all and we should study them. Because they had a purpose, and that purpose was to point Jews and the nations to Christ. Right? To separate Jews from the other nations, but to point them to Christ, they no longer apply to us today. Look at what verse 14 says For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Right? The laws that once separated Jews and Gentiles, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, are abolished. They're gone. We don't have to follow them anymore. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of the law. It leads us to our last point. Christ has united us through the cross. Christ has united us through the cross. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. I love that last part. Killing the hostility. Look at verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. When I think of that word peace, I usually think of the, the lack of fighting. Right? The lack of hostility, which is, which is great, and I'm glad for this type of peace. I'm glad that we're not at war with Russia or China or North Korea. and In one sense, we are at peace with those countries. I'm very thankful for that, but that's not the peace Paul's talking about. Look at verse 15 again. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Paul doesn't want people in the church just to stop fighting. Paul doesn't want the Jews and Gentiles in this church just to stop fighting. He wants the two to become one. He wants complete unity. He wants a, a new man, one body. You know what? Actually, the truth is we are one body. If you go through this passage, all the verbs are in the past tense, that Christ has already made us one body. Paul wants us to recognize that. He wants us to live in that truth. Honer, a theologian, said this, Paul creates a picture of two groups, Gentile and Jew, As one single individual of a mature person. Therefore, in the present context, Paul refers to to a whole new race that is formed. A new race that is raceless. I love that. A new race that is raceless. That's what Paul means by peace. Listen, we are living in a day and age where I feel like it's just getting more and more hostile in in our culture. Political hostility, racial hostility, just individuals being hostile towards each other. Listen, the church is one, it's one body made from a diversity of people. Can you imagine the testimony we could have as a church? If we truly lived as one, we truly were united as one, as as the culture again starts falling apart and there's hatred and, and hostility everywhere, at some point they're going to have to look at the church and go, why isn't there hostility there? What a testimony we could have. It's one of the things I actually love about missions. I've been to Poland, Australia, Mexico, Indonesia, and every time I've gone to one of these countries, we've gone to church services. And just think of the diversity of that. I was just thinking of that: Poland, Mexico, and Indonesia—completely different countries, different cultures. You know what amazes me is every every culture I go to, and and go to a true Bible-believing church. There's a sense of familiarity. We We don't even speak the same language. There's a sense of love. Right, there's a sense of oneness that I'm welcome and I'm part of this. I, I can't communicate, but I feel it. There's a sense of, and I can't even explain this, but there's truly a sense of being at home. And usually it's in the context of me being away from home and, and missing home. And go to church on Sunday morning, and there's this feeling of home. This has shown me that we truly are one body, there's truly just one spirit within all of us. Even when I don't speak the language, we are all one. We have a core identity. And I think that's Paul's main point in this whole entire passage. We all share a core identity, a core identity that's more important than any other identity. Look at verse 15 again. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both. That's Jew and Gentiles. These, these, these groups that hated each other might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. Unity within the church, again, comes back to our identity in Christ. Look at verse 16. It says, he might reconcile us. That's Jew and Gentile. He might reconcile these two groups. might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Through the cross. John MacArthur says this, For those in Christ, the only identity that matters is their identity in him. There is no Jewish or Gentile Christianity There is no black or white Christianity. There is no male or female Christianity or or free or slave Christianity. There is only Christianity. Our Lord has only one church. Look back at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In the human race, when it comes to race, age, gender, upbringing, nationalities, families, there is only one distinction that matters. It's those that are far off, right? The unsaved, and those that have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the saved. Our identity, more than, than anything else, should be being in Christ. True unity starts. Having our identity in Christ again that 's why Paul starts this whole section in verse eleven with the word "Therefore, therefore," which points back to the gospel found in ephesians two one through ten Paul lays out this beautiful, beautiful passage in ephesians two one through ten that that is so loved within the church, and it talks about our salvation, being dead and being brought alive and he, he spells that all out, I believe, to get to verse eleven. Start talking about unity. The only distinction that matters is those that are dead, those that are far off, those that aren't saved, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And those that are alive, those that have been brought near, those that are in Christ, those that are saved, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, your identity more than anything else, more than anything else is being in Christ. Christ, is being in Christ. That's the foundation to our unity. We are all in Christ. We are all one body. I want to end with this, because I think it's important, and I think it has to do with unity. Unity also comes with just being with each other, right? (laughs) Getting to know each other, loving on each other, keeping each other accountable, growing together, And this is why small groups are so important. We've been pushing small groups this whole year, asking if you would consider joining a small group. We call them growth groups here at our church, but they're just smaller groups because it's hard to really get to know each other. It's hard to keep each other accountable when when you come and hear a monologue for an hour Sunday mornings, that's it. And so I would encourage you, if you're not part of a growth group, maybe a Sunday morning Sunday school class or a midweek growth group, encourage you to, to seek one out and think about maybe joining one. And again, we're one body, so it doesn't matter what age group it is. I'd love to see a lot of diversity in our, our small groups. Ages, single, married, divorce, all together. Kids, teenagers. I would encourage you, we're having a growth group fair in the next room here. If you don't have a growth group, just... Maybe go check it out. There's people from different growth groups. Uh, Sign your name down if you're just interested with a phone number, and the growth group leader will call you and just kind of tell you a little bit about the growth group. Part of our unity is really knowing each other. In a church our size, of course, we're not going to know everyone. I get that. But having a core group of people that you truly know, and and that word know, I mean intimately know that you are close with. So I would encourage you to, to pray and think about that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I feel the heaviness of this passage, Lord, as we talk about unity and how important unity is, Lord. You said they they will know us by our love, that the community would would know us by how we love each other, Lord, that we would be diverse, Lord. I love diversity, Lord, but we would be unified in our, our, our love for you, our worship for you. It's just like the Trinity. It's a reflection of the Trinity. Three persons, diverse, with different roles, completely one. God, I pray that we reflect that to our community, Lord. And I don't. I, I pray for every church, Lord. Every church in Tehachapi, Lord. I pray for every church in our nation, Lord. As as our nation is falling apart, as there is hate and hostility that just is growing, as there is ugliness and politics and 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 everything else, Lord. I pray that the church just grows in its unity, Lord, especially as persecution comes, Lord, that we just, we look at each other as as one body and we grow so that the community looks at us and goes, what's different with them? Why isn't there hostility there? God, I pray that's our testimony. I do pray that for our church, Lord. I pray that we are so unified it's a testimony, Lord, that we we are so accepting of of different cultures and and different different people groups, Lord, that we are truthful about sin, Lord. That we love homosexuals but we are truthful that that is a sin. That we are unified, Lord, and in our love, that we are one mind, Lord. I pray that for our church, and I pray that that is a testimony, God. Be with us, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.